Another edition of Thinking Like a Lawyer. I'm Joe Patrice. That Hi, was Joe Kat- Patrice. Hi. That was Catherine Rubino. Uh, Chris Williams is also here. Yes. Okay. <laughs> and that brings us to our usual compliment. This is Thinking Like a Lawyer. We're from above the law. We are giving our weekly, you know, our our, our kind of round readers. Up. Our roundup, our Reader's Digest of the big things mm. that we covered in the week. Uh, the week for, that was. Yeah, you know, sometimes you don't have time to read every one of our stories as they come across because you're busy. So we hope well, to give you. Well, it also might be that the deluge of bonus posts buried some of the other things that are out there. So we'll we'll give you a quick rundown. That's a, that's a fair point. I, and I think maybe that will be a... Um, a kind of work, quasi-work-related version of Small Talk. <laughs> Yeah. Okay. Oh, yeah, yeah. No, that, yeah. <laughs> you see, now I fully understand that you're trying to push this small talk whisper thing because you think I'm going to replace the sound effect and you were so wrong. Okay. <laughs> we'll see. I have the power of a drop of rain. I think it's just a nice little, uh, little addition. You know, not everything has to be about usurping the Joe, you know. Okay. <laughs> but it is. Anyway, <laughs> so. Ugh, with with not comebacks a, not like a, that. Not everything has to be. I just am familiar with on within the context of the 30 minutes we record this show, everything is. So listen, <laughs> bonuses. Yeah, that's right. We've talked about bonuses already a bit on this show. We have. Uh, there's not a ton new to talk about as far as the substance of what's going on there, other than we did just get a report last week that Cravath, you know, more, more or less followed the, the, the lead that had been set. Uh, that model as her usual, is becoming the model that most firms are following. So that's what we're looking at. Um, bonuses that are, you know, slightly better than last year. Uh, for the younger associates. For the younger yeah. associates. Otherwise, kind of keeping form. Yeah, which is, I think, very much, very similar to what we expected overall. And the all of the announcements that we've gone through last week uh, were just other firms signing on to that scale. Matches. Yeah, that's what's been going on. Uh, all of our prior commentary about how this relates to a world in which layoffs are also happening uh, yet some places still holds true. Uh, mm-hmm. But it looks like, with the possible exception of a few firms, largely with tech-based clientele, most firms seem like they are holding the line and able to give people good bonuses despite challenging economic times. Think that's fair? I do think that's fair. I guess the the one difference has been, um, at least in terms of the Cravath announcement, is who counts as a senior associate or counsel, meaning that they're off the grid, meaning that they don't have a set amount that they are guaranteed to make if they're, you know, in good standing, but instead will be individualized. Cravath added eight year, eighth year associates to the folks who are off the grid, which historically have been on the grid. Um, We have not heard a lot of feedback from those folks yet. See if they are better off, worse off, somewhere in between. My guess is that those very experienced associates are going to be okay. So we'll say that. No, that's that's true. And that is always a challenge every year. The the folks, once they reach right like that eighth year and become senior attorneys or of counsel or even income partners, uh, they they fall off of the quote unquote grid of pay and 
you know, then it's kind of the wild west. Mm -hmm. um, so, but other than that, how, how have you been, Chris? You didn't join us last week. Uh, so how are you feeling better? I'm feeling better. I'm alive with the glory of love. Um, <laughs> let's see. I was happy to check my work email and see that Joe Patrice was objectively wrong. This is about him. Um, mm. with the notion that everyone is familiar with the works of, um, Melville. And this was discussed on last week's show, too, that with that this had come in. Uh, yeah. So we we got some reader commentary on a, a previous show's dispute over whether or not the phrase white whale was something people just kind of No, it, it wasn't. It wasn't a dispute. It yeah. was me being right and Joe being wrong, but loud about it. Well, and, and what the, and there was and clear what, evidence what was happening, which was I was right. And Joe was being wrong and loud about it. And what we learned from this email was that this person knew exactly what the phrase white whale meant, but had never really known that it was drawn from Moby Dick as opposed to just some other origin of the phrase. So, I will go pull up the email. I think yeah. the wording was I was not familiar. You are reading into it. No, I think it was that they weren't familiar with the the origins of it, which is absolutely right. fair. Right. We're doing this. This can get this can get edited in the downtime, but we're doing this. I will I will double down on you being wrong. Oh no, it's the oh yeah, no. You I had it opposite. They knew it was a Moby Dick reference, but didn't know what that reference was. Uh so as a they knew it was Moby Dick, but didn't know what it meant. Uh, I thought it was the other way around, but same. Which is to say if they didn't know what it meant, they didn't mm -hmm. really know it was oh, yeah. Moby Dick. Well no, they no, no, they the the thing reads, I knew it was a Moby Dick reference, but I didn't know what it was about. Uh which yeah, is okay. which is fair. Either I mean, way, you're holding an L, which makes me happy. And I feel like, you know, Catherine's probably smiling on the inside. So we were talking about it the week you decided not to show up because that's how much I was ready to talk about it. But, mm, mm, you know, I mean, yeah. look, you, I knew you couldn't come because you were going to be proven wrong about the turkey thing again. So I get it. <laughs> look, ham is a better bird than turkey. I stand yeah. on that. People yeah, eat turkey I mean, because it's a genocide tradition, not because it's a good bird. And if you want a, proof of that. I will say I had both turkey and ham at my Thanksgiving feast, and the turkey was way more eaten than the ham. Objectively better. Well, but, I mean, it could have been because of obligation. Because like what other. I mean, both were available and on the table. Both were yeah. available. But like turkey is the Thanksgiving thing because of dead hand control of like dead people, which is called tradition, you know, like if Turkey was such a good bird, we'd have it at other events. We, I mean, lots of people be, have it at Christmas. Yeah. It's, a, it's a very traditional Christmas meal as well. Yeah. But, yeah. But like, it's a traditional thing. Like nobody's that's like, a, that's like it, two of the ham. biggest dinners of the year. I mean, t and turkey sandwiches and so on, uh, like turkey as a as a deli meat that is on sandwiches all the time. I when see people are salads. dieting. I see it no, in salads all the not time. At all. No, I mean, it's just objectively a better meal. And you know, I'm saying, that's fine. So like if you want to compare like like normative consumption of chicken to turkey, there's no question who's winning here. Like chicken is the better bird. Yeah, that's that's because well, of it, big chicken. But. Well, I, I also think they're you know, it is obviously easier to get chickens than turkeys because they're smaller and easier to raise. But. And there's less of a demand for them. I mean, I, I don't know as though that would be true. It just, I mean, people do people cultivate foie gras. Like if there was a desire for it, there'd be more turkey. Although they, they cultivate foie gras, but it's not in everything, right? Because it's, it's difficult to do. Yes, because it's difficult to but do. But the demand is clearly there. Turkey is like, eh, maybe a deli sandwich or like big holidays. Tons of deli sandwiches. Anyway, yes. Point is, we've been over this far too much. Uh, we get it. You're... You're chasing this white whale that you aren't going to catch. <laughs> that, that ham is better. Whale's than already caught. 
Walls already caught. Is it a better bird too? Anyway, we're done uh, with small talk and only because we have too much else to talk about. What do we have to talk about, Catherine? We had lots of good stories last year, um, particularly the Supreme Court uh, came out with um, its statement on the Alito, the second Alito leak, not to be confused with the Dobbs leak, uh, but rather the Hobby Lobby case. Um, and I think that that's a story you covered. Yeah, I was inviting you to talk about the story you covered, oh. but by all means, we could do this one first. So Sam Alito, uh, who has been one of the vocal people complaining about how the Dobbs case got leaked. Uh, most of us think that either he or Ginny Thomas did that, but you know, he's complaining that it's the worst thing ever. Uh, meanwhile, we've gotten no report back from the original claims at the time that Chief Justice Roberts was going to get to the bottom of this. Uh, hold that, hold that dot, thought dot, for dot. a second. Put a pin in that. What has come out since that investigation started is a religious leader who was a longtime uh, anti-abortion activist and was very much in the kind of right-wing social circles that we have read about before that Alito, among some of the other conservative justices, meet routinely with right-wing leaders uh, and pray with them in their offices and stuff like that. This religious leader who has been part of that movement uh, felt somewhat guilty and worried about this investigation into the Dobbs leak and therefore felt well, They've also left the anti-abortion movement, which is relevant, I well, think. Well, moderated uh, their stance on it, right. yes. yes. Uh, and felt compelled because of what was going on to report to the Chief Justice that Oh, uh, yeah. Alito told us all about Hobby Lobby before it came down to an accusation that kind of throws some water on Alito's grandstanding about how leaks deserve to be prosecuted or something for this non-crime, whatever. It's anyway, not. Yeah, it's not a crime. Let's right. be very clear. So with that said, uh, this allegation is out there and it is now been dispensed with because the Supreme Court's Council has issued a letter explaining that they looked into this by asking Alito if he did it, and Alito said no, so they're done. Uh, that was the conclusion of this. Uh, reminder, no, okay, so put aside that. Uh, well, there's so much to talk about here. What do we, which, which angle do we want to go to first? Uh, first of all, thinking that just asking, hey, Lee, hey, 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 Sam, did you, did you do this thing that you said was probably bad? No, nope, nope, didn't do it at all. Okay, we're done here. Nothing to see. Yeah. Uh, it, this is in stark contrast to this Dobbs leak where the chief justice had the marshal seize cell phones and stuff from clerks uh, because they thought it might be a clerk. So they seized phone records and calendars and well, which they had control custody over, but also asked for the cell phones of these folks. Uh, this is the sort of wide ranging, intrusive and thorough investigation they're willing to do when they think it might be you know, a clerk involved. Uh, now we have credible allegations that a justice did the same thing. And the sum total of the investigative power is him telling, you no. Right. so great work, gumshoes. <laughs> You're never going to catch out. Carmen Sandiego that way. Yeah. And I think that one of one of the things they, they said is that they that even the journalists that broke the story were not able to find direct corroboration of the story. There was plenty of circumstantial evidence that they were able to locate and they discussed in the initial article, but they weren't able to get direct corroboration from any of the people involved, directly involved, which doesn't seem shocking. 
right? Because, right. So, and that was, that featured prominently into this letter, which was right. basically an embarrassing admission of how broken the Supreme Court as an institution is. This letter, one of the arguments made in the letter for why they should just go ahead and trust Alito saying no was, hey, Politico wasn't able to find any corroboration for this either. And I was like, oh, really? The news organization that is limited to just cold calling people with every self-interest in saying it didn't happen, they couldn't get past that. You have the power to look at his calendars and phones and stuff like that. He he works there. Yeah. And, and to as I said, there was some circumstantial evidence. The allegations were that Alito and his wife had dinner with donors of this anti-abortion movement. And those donors got that information and they shared it with the reverend who has now come out. And if you look at some of his contemporaneous emails, which he provided to the journalists, say things like, I have news or, you know, lots of there's lots of circumstantial stuff. If you go back at his emails, because he's the one who provided them, he's the one who felt it's important to talk about this. He's the one who who wants the attention on how the court deals with leaks, right? And there is circumstantial contemporaneous evidence that something was going on or he thought that he knew some information, um, but those direct two parties involved, no, they were not able to get from them. Yes, I did the thing that you think is bad. Yeah, but my, my point is just the idea that an institution trying who ostensibly cares about this would not only rest on this laurel, but feel comfortable putting in a letter that Correct. they're resting on the laurel, mm -hmm. that a news organization with no ability to compel discovery in any way of this couldn't find an answer, so therefore I'm not going to bother to investigate, uh, is just really troubling. Troubling. Uh, troubling. But it's a symptom of the fact that uh, the justices obey zero ethical rules. Yeah, there there is no ethical code for the Supreme Court. It doesn't look like there's much movement on that, despite the mounting ethical concerns about the Supreme Court. Well, that's not entirely fair. There There is an ethical code. Uh, the Supreme Court, though, has taken the position that they impose that ethical code on other right. federal they, judges. They themselves, they say, are not bound by that. Correct. Code. They don't feel bound by right. it. They say that they will ascribe to it, but if they do not follow it, they believe, and their their longstanding position is they Shrug emoji. do not have to do anything yeah. if they don't do it. Yeah. Uh, they're a co-equal branch. You can't impose anything on them. They can't impose anything on themselves. So there you are. Woohoo! Yeah. Uh, <laughs> real, real craziness. Broken. Broken system. Good news. Yeah. Calidus AI cleverly supports you by suggesting relevant law to address your complex issues. Put in simple questions or longer fact patterns, then Calidus asks you to confirm if points are salient before proceeding. Use Calidus to check if you found all the key concepts, cases, and statutes. Calidus turns that into a high-quality, customer-ready document. Handle complexity confidently with Legal's most advanced AI platform. Get $90 off your first two months. Use promo code Joe at CalidusAI.com. That's C-A-L-L-I-D-U-S-A-I.com. Hey, Guy, what's up? Just having some lunch, Conrad. Hey, Guy, do you see that billboard out there? Oh, you mean that guy out there in the gray suit? Yeah, the gray suit guy. Order up. There's uh, all those beautiful, rich, leather-bound books in the background. That is exactly the one. That's J.D. McGuffin at Law. He'll fight for you! I bet you he has got so many years of experience. Like decades and decades. And I bet, Guy, I bet he even went 
to a law school. Are you a lawyer? Do you suffer from dull marketing and a lack of positioning in a crowded legal marketplace? Sit down with Guy and Conrad for Lunch Hour Legal Marketing on the Legal Talk Network, available wherever podcasts are found. All right, so let's go back to you talking now about sure another your story. Dobbs-related story. In the aftermath of Dobbs, there was a, a bit of a scandal at Hogan Lovell's big law firm, where uh, they had a uh, a meeting, an all hands kind of meeting. I think there was over 400 women who attended the meeting talking about uh, in the wake of the Dobbs decision, kind of going through and, and talking about the decision. Um, one of the partners, Robin Keller, got on the call and proceeded to espouse a number of problematic views about um, abortion, specifically that it was uh, black genocide and black women were responsible for this genocide, et cetera, and that people needed to channel their rage. It was it was problematic. Uh, in the sort of aftermath of all of these comments, there was an investigation that was done by the firm. They hired an outside firm to look into it. There was an investigation and Keller was fired. Um, she was let go. Now she's resurfaced, you know, like a bad penny keeps on turning up, this time with an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal. Oh, oh, uh, hold on. I was going to intervene there. Oh, she has an op-ed. What what institution would bother <laughs> to publish something so ridiculous? Yeah, very much taking um, a page from Paul Clement's book and going to the Wall Street Journal to complain, big laws to woke. Mwah. But complaining that Hogan Lovell's kowtow to woke faction, etc. So there's not much to be done. The firm issued a statement saying that, you know, basically saying that they encourage folks to talk about issues that matter, but we value our difference and makes us stronger and they need to pe- people to conduct themselves in accordance with firm policies. She was fired as a result of the anti-harassment policy at the firm. So it was interesting, kind of a, a follow on to the existing story that we had. But one of the things that kind of struck me is I think that for any piece that I've written this year, I have gotten the most hate mail about this particular article. Oh, yeah. Or, or this particular thread of articles. No. You've read, oh, just no, this No, just one. this one. Not, the, not even the initial one where I, where I talked about what happened and then there was an update to the story about how she got fired. No, those did not seem to really bother the trolls as much as when I say talking about complaining in the Wall Street Journal about it is really not doing a lot of anything. Were they substantive complaints, at least? Well, what do you mean by substantive? Like somebody, uh, you know, had a Was it like, uh, did somebody read what you said and they're like, oh, here are the the merits of the argument Catherine is making. Let me respond in kind. No, 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 no. Uh, One of them, one of my favorites had a subject line. It was like, there are factual errors in your story. And, you know, as a journalist, you you know, your heart skips a little beat. You look, you're like, oh, what? And it's like... Mm. Abortion kills people. And I'm like, oh, okay, never mind. <laughs> I can I can delete this one too. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it was a, a lot of um a lot of vitriol uh about uh abortion in general, which I don't know why there's so much vitriol. They literally just won. Anti-abortion advocates are the ones who are the winners as of right now. But yeah, a lot of a lot of anger that somebody could be fired for and and, and again. It's not just that, oh, she has a, an opinion about the law, right? This is not some dry, esoteric point of law or she's making some sort of a reasoned, you know, legal analysis about even the Dobbs decision, right? right. This, this is black women commit genocide. Right. And, and that's what carries it over into being a harassing statement, right? Mm-hmm. Like, it, like there would be pushback and, and some 
grumbling if she said, I actually think it's great that uh, the Supreme Court decided to read a witch hunter's treatise and right. re re rewrite the Constitution over that. Uh, that would get some eye rolls, but it was not anti-harassment. It is anti-harassment when a, someone in a partner position mm -hmm. uh, who has that authority starts espousing that they think what's wrong with abortion is that black women disproportionately are trying to murder people. Uh, when that is the statement that's going out, uh, that is that is evidence of discrimination or the risk of it, at least within a firm, which justifies a firm doing a third party investigation mm -hmm. and acting. Yeah. I know I know for a fact that some debater is going to send this to Frank Wilderson for his next piece. <laughs> <laughs> but and the thing that gets me is that and the thing that I really think kind of linking it to our last story about how the Supreme Court as an institution is broken. The thing that really bothered me is that because of the the way not just that Dobbs overturned 50 years of precedent but because of the way it was written and sort of the half facts that were used to create both the the majority decision as well as the concurrence creates this kind of veneer of credibility for these very hateful statements about abortion to be made right it's only she Keller only thinks she has an argument to to spew this kind of problematic language and thoughts because the Supreme Court decisions have given her cover, have, have sort of said, hey, we're pretending like this is real so you can then talk about it in, in, po in polite company. But that's not true. And I really applaud the firm for taking a stance, doing the investigation, doing the work to make sure that it's very clear who's welcome, you know, what they're doing, what the firm stands for. Mm -hmm. yeah, I think that's fair. Okay, back. Let's talk now about argu arguably the biggest story of last week. The 11th Circuit has finally issued a ruling in the Mar-a-Lago documents case, mm. uh, where, as you may recall, Judge Eileen Cannon had determined that she had jurisdiction to take over another judge's case <laughs> about a criminal warrant, and with her seizing of jurisdiction, she had the ability to appoint a special master to kind of backdoor uh, a motion that Trump had not made about getting documents back or using them within a criminal investigation, basically setting up the idea that if you are subject of a criminal investigation and people have seized your documents, you are entitled to know who the snitches are before you're charged. <laughs> um, that is... Uh, you know, while a wonderful nod towards Tony Soprano's uh, <laughs> world, it is not how the world actually operates. No, no. Uh, and ultimately, the 11th Circuit has now done that, obviously, with two Trump appointees and one of our personal favorite, George, George, George. W. Bush appointees, yeah. Chief Judge Pryor. They struck this down. Uh, with, with extreme, extreme prejudice. And yeah. that, that's actually one of my favorite parts about this. And one of the reasons I'll... I, what Twitter was at one point, I will certainly miss uh, as as Elon continues to grind it into the ground. But the sort of I told you so moment that is happening so loud on legal Twitter right now, people pulling up their tweets from when uh, Judge Cannon made her original decision, uh, all this stuff. This is not how the law works kind of people tweets that people are resurfacing now because the 11th Circuit was like, um, no, not even a little bit. It was really kind of harsh and uh, snarky. Toward, Delightful, actually, yeah, to read. Toward her work. Well, my takeaway, and I've, I've talked about this a bit in other forums, but like my problem, not problem, but my issue with this is I feel bad for 
and not not really bad, but kind of bad for the clerks involved here, right? Like <laughs> Judge Cannon's going to have clerks who are going to enter the job market and for the rest of their lives, people will say, ooh, federal clerkship. I mean, that's ooh. Ooh. Uh, what you know, year? Ooh. What year? Yeah. <laughs> I, and, and like, look, I, I think this is going to become increasingly a thing. I mean, I've already encountered it with some employers who have started, as, you know, with the rise of the the judges that got placed on the bench during the last administration who earned ABA not qualified ratings, so much so and so prevalent this was that the standard conservative position at this point is that the ABA should not be allowed to evaluate judges anymore. Because, you know, uh, the thinking guy emoji can't be not qualified if the ABA can't opine. Uh, <laughs> So with with that said, with all of that going on, I've already heard from employers who are starting to take a more credulous view of federal clerkships when they see what used to be kind of an automatic, ooh, you got it. Uh, maybe they would pay attention if it was some really good clerkship, but normally a clerkship of any kind was given a, given kind of universal acclaim. And I think... And I've definitely heard people are starting to come around to the idea that maybe it isn't. All and, clerkships are not created equal. Yeah, and some are created very bad. What, what I what I take my takeaway was that I I think that watching Eileen Cannon in Vegas would be fascinating because she she gambles big, right? She took this very extreme position, and what did she think was going to happen? Did she not think that she would be? slapped down pretty quickly. I mean, she got probably the most favorable panel of appellate 11th Circuit judges that she could have and was slapped down with extreme prejudice. Ooh. I mean, she just, she's bet big and lost. That is definitely, definitely the case. And yeah, I, I just, look, if you're, if your vision for your career is that you're going to go into distinctly MAGA politics, maybe this clerkship does work. Mm -hmm. uh, you might not get a, big law job ever, but you know, you, no, might, you can work at Jones day. Yeah, maybe <laughs> uh, fair enough, but yeah. you, you'll be able to walk out of this and get appointed. Well, maybe frankly, given what they've done in the past, the next Republican administration might give you a, your own district court <laughs> court uh, seat. That said, it, if you have any designs on making money in the real sector, this it becomes dangerous. You need to start considering your clerkship applications a little more cautiously. There are a lot of good, well-respected conservative judges out there that if you're on their list, uh, that might bode well for you in both worlds. Mm -hmm. uh, but there are definitely some where you're not getting the full value of a clerkship vis-a-vis -vis your career. Absolutely. Well, then our final story, I guess we should talk about is what's going on at Penn State, because this is a fairly big deal. The there, there are two Penn State law schools, as some people know. They, there was the independent Dickinson Law School, which Penn State system bought. Uh, then they attempted to, well, they, they ran them as two schools for a while. Then they merged them into one. Then they did this thing where they built a giant building in on the main campus and tried to argue that everybody, as part of the being one school, all one L's had to go to one, and then they could choose if they went to the other one. Then they became two fully separate schools, and now they announced in a surprise announcement last week on the eve of finals that we're going to remerge as one law school. And the going theory on that is that they are going to close the main campus and move everybody to Dickinson. It just that's what the tea leaves seem to look like. Uh, it is an interesting 
idea whether or not this saves them any money, given that they've already sunk costs into a large building on the main campus. I mean, maybe they can repurpose it. Uh, are they going to have to spend a ton of metric ton of money to build more facilities in Dickinson? Probably because they've now doubled the size of the school right. functionally. Uh, does this save them anything? What's going to happen to the faculty? Are there going to be layoffs because of redundancy there? Like it, it, it's difficult to say. Uh, but the biggest issue, putting aside whether or not it's a good move to merge these. The biggest issue is dropping this with zero an, zero warning uh, mm -hmm. on for either the student or most of the faculty right. from what we've heard to drop this days before finals is just and then not even to have a Q&A period have like a 10 minute Q&A period on an announcement they just dropped with no preparation uh, is just the height of disrespect. Uh, it's a real problem. Yeah. And we've definitely heard a lot of folks uh, who are at the schools who are very confused, wondering what's happening, and frankly upset about the entire process, which seems fair to me. Yeah, it's real bad. And, you know, you're you're stretched really thin going into finals no matter what, right? Mm -hmm. And to do this, uh, to make people wonder what's going to happen to their degree. And, and yeah, the, certainly they're going to make accommodations for people who are already enrolled, I'm sure. sure. But, you know, that's that's not really a lot of comfort if what's going to happen is you graduate and your law degree is now says a school that no longer exists. Uh, that's not good. Even if PN, you know, you basically are inviting that you have to explain for the rest of your life why your degree is what it is. Uh, that's not great. I'm not taking a position on whether or not merging them might be ultimately the correct idea substantively, but I will very much take the stance that doing it couple of days before finals was never the right answer. For sure. Is there any real substantive difference between a law school that has its name changed? Like, for example, I'm thinking of like Penn changing its name to Cary. Like, will people be affected by that? No. I mean, I mean so, it's different because it's Penn and right. it's fucking Penn, but like... Well, right, 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 right. Uh, yeah, the law schools that change their name by adding a donor to it uh, and then being very insistent that you always use the name of the donor, which... We deal with all the time here at Above the Law. We tend to ignore a lot of that because it's ridiculous. But and Carrie was very much uh, Penn's situation was very much part of that. They they went so far as to really for a while push. Don't even say that we're Penn Law School. You have to call us Carrie. Well, that was ridiculous, and we all ignored that the same way we ignore most stadium naming deals. <laughs> that said. Uh, this would be a little different. I mean, I think we're they're definitely going to continue to call it Penn State, no matter where it is. But it's, you know, it it's going to it's going to matter. It's going to ultimately. It sounds like they're going to move people away from kind of the universe where the main campus is. Move it all to Carlisle. You know, mm -hmm. that's a little that's a big change. Uh, it yeah, it's it, no. Those, those, those are, are those are those are quality of life adjustments. I oh, get yeah. that. That's important. But I'm just talking about as far as like the prestige of the degree. So the prestige of the degree, their argument, uh, the university's argument is that it will get better. Uh, I don't know how true that is, but their argument is that it will get better because they currently are running two schools that are both equally good. Uh, they're both in kind of the high 50, low 60s. Their argument is that by putting them together, they can have one excellent school. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure that's true. Uh, they can obviously, assuming they get smaller as a law school, which I'm thinking has to be the answer because if it's a cost-saving measure, you can't dump. 300 more students into a campus that's not built for them. So that means they're probably going to have to get more selective. 
Does that help them? Maybe to the extent rankings matter. Uh, we've already talked about how those may not matter for much longer. But yeah, I mean, like good plus good means gooder is at least a facially like sustainable yeah. argument. Like, because I'm worried because like about the claim like a person needs to explain that that the school they go to doesn't exist anymore. I, I would imagine there would be a, a softer cushion to land on and be like, yeah, the school that I used to go to, it's better now. Now it's called X. Like, I'm just thinking. Like them in the interview, like they would they really have an issue with explaining the change to their employer? Yeah, I mean, if it just becomes Penn State, it might not be all that bad. My my feeling is and I think this may be borne out and I don't know all the details of how they took over. My feeling is that the agreement that brought where they purchased Dickinson probably requires them to call that school Dickinson, which mm -hmm. would suggest that if you did not go to that school, you didn't go to the real school. Gotcha. Um, and that was the issue that for a while it sounded like it seems as though different university presidents there have tried to get rid of this law school, the Dickinson thing altogether, and found that actually the agreement by which they bought it was that if the university runs any law school whatsoever, they must maintain the Dickinson part. So they, mm. they can only, only either don't do law school or have it in Dickinson. So anyway, anyway, yeah, the, the point is don't, don't treat your students this way. Uh, the announcement suggests that students are going to have a say in the future of this. One hopes that's true. I've told some, some students who've reached out to me uh, hoping to raise, stay on this issue. I've told them, look, uh, we are going to stay on this issue, but we're not probably going to spend a lot of time on it in the next two weeks just because, A, there's not a lot of progress going on, and, B, you all need to get through the set of finals, and then we can regroup and start talking about it a lot more in January. But we'll see. Anyway, so that's, that's going on, and that was a big story that, uh, last week, too. And now I think we're done, so thanks for listening. You should subscribe to the show, get them when they come out, give reviews, all of that stuff. You should read Above the Law so that you can read these and other stories as they come out. You can follow it at, at ATL blog for as for long now. as Twitter continues to exist. Um, you can follow us individually. I'm at Joseph Patrice. She's at Catherine One, that numeral one there. He's at Rights for Rent. Uh, you should follow uh, the other shows that we do. Catherine's mm -hmm. the host of a podcast called Jabot. I'm a guest on the Legal Week Journalists Roundtable. Uh, the, no, the Legal Tech Week Journalists Roundtable. Uh, with that, uh, you should listen to the other shows by the Legal Talk Network. And yeah, I think that's it. All right, bye all. If you're a lawyer running a solo or small firm and you're looking for other lawyers to talk through issues you're currently facing in your practice, join the Unbillable Hours Community Roundtable, a free virtual event on the third Thursday of every month. Lawyers from all over the country come together and meet with me, lawyer and law firm management consultant Christopher T. Anderson, to discuss best practices on topics such as marketing, client acquisition, hiring and firing, and time management. The conversation is free to join, but requires a simple reservation. The link to RSVP can be found on the Unbillable Hour page at LegalTalkNetwork.com. We'll see you there.